action shooting show. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Primer and Co. And uh, I guess we'll get out of the way now. Um, I'm sponsored by Code Evolution and um, somewhat Rubber City Armory. They've they've helped me out a lot. So anyone else want to do that right off the bat? We always forget to do that, and I want to thank the people who have helped us out. So shill early, shill early, and shill often. Nothing. I'll shill for uh, Rubber City Armory. You know, Jeffrey Larson, awesome dude. And then, of course, CB Guns. Got to thank Dustin Crude of CB Guns. Fantastic guy. Can hook you up with all the good stuff. And, uh, yeah, that works for me. Uh, that that works. He's actually he's bringing my uh, suppressor to the match this this Sunday. So, hopefully the zero shift's not too bad. Because <laughs> it's never been on there to shoot before. But we're going we're gonna to do it live. That's all right, though. It's going to be fun. All right, so part two. Oh, sorry. We have um, myself, Ryan Dixon, Mike Ford, Mark Rebke. So um, we're going to get started. Part two of our optics episode. Today we're going to be talking about uh, LPVOs and MPVOs. So for, I guess, people that are newer to firearms, you may be going, I don't, I don't know what the hell that is. Um, low power variable optic. LPVO, medium power variable optic, MPVO. So um, low power variable optic, basically anything that is has like a 1x magnification, so no magnification or almost no magnification on the low end. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit. Up to whatever the manufacturer can give you on the top end. Um, traditionally, that's been like four or six. Nowadays, they're getting into 8 and 10 power on the top end. I don't know of anyone that does more than 10x. They, they may exist, but that's, that's kind of the, the main uh, top end you have on it. And then medium power, um, maybe it's a little bit bigger of a range there, but you'll have typically like a 2 to 3-ish on the low end, and then 10 to 12, 14 on the high end. Again, just... None of this is cut in stone. These are just kind of general. If you start getting over like three or four X on the bottom end and the five and, and up that I would consider that like a high power magnification that that would be a little outside of a lot of what we do. So we're really not going to be talking about that today. Um, before we go on guys, anything you want to square away with my definition there? Oh, this all, all this is just cool guy stuff, though, because everyone that's had three to nines for all of the gun's history has never, ever called it a medium power variable optic, and they've never been happy about it. But now that we had low power variable optics and we realized, let's just go a little bit more. Now we have a new cool guy term. So that's all. I you know what? <laughs> it, it that is funny because we really have gone back now i don't think i think three is maybe a little too much magnification but in the past they made like 2.5 to like sixes or eights or you know they they were you know we've we've kind of gone full circle so you're, you're not wrong about that the difference is now they're not just a duplex reticle you're not just shooting like you know the the plain crosshair with little thicker on the sides. So, Mike, anything to add before we move on? 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple concept. So kind of like we did the last episode, we want to go into some of the strengths, some of the weaknesses. Like if you're going to buy one of these or you're looking into getting an optic, why would you choose one of these optics? So I think the first, the, the obvious, the most obvious is that you can see better. So one X you're the, you're in the same realm as a red dot as far as what you can see, you know, most of them are one X you can get into the etched reticles. Like we talked about maybe three or four or five, but generally you're seeing about the same where this starts to really benefit is when you get into shooting a little bit further or needing a little bit more, um, target identification. So I think a lot of people initially go to, well, if I'm shooting farther, I need more zoom. That can be true on the flip side. There's also the seeing better. So maybe the target's only 100 yards, but at 100 yards, I can see a person. If I zoom up to three or four or five or six or, you know, whatever it is, I can see better. Not Now it's not just a person. That is my significant other. That's my friend. That is somebody who should not be here. Um, so I think target identification is missed. Um, Obviously, that's outside of the gaming realm, but inside the gaming realm, you're actually able to see targets better where you're shooting at. Are they, is it a target? Is it a no-shoot target? Is it a um, target obscured by something? So I think um, magnification can do wonders for uh, a lot of things like that. Again, do you guys want to kind of go in on that? Yeah, the big thing for us as gamers is that our targets aren't moving. They're not shooting back. So, you know, our eyes are naturally drawn to movement and everything is sitting perfectly still. And a lot of times we're at least in run and gun, three gun stuff, the steel's not painted. So there's no contrast. And so even if it's painted at the beginning of the day, by the end, all the paint's gone. And so a gray or black target in a shadow is essentially invisible at a certain distance with the naked eye. And so once you zoom in, you say, ah, there's the target. And so you get that contrast that you wouldn't have with the naked eye. And I think that's the biggest thing, you know, IDing targets in our gaming stuff, it's not that big a deal, but finding it in a wood line or identifying where the target is behind a little bit of grass, those sort of things where we don't have any other visual cues, you know, as we're predators with our eyes close together, we need movement, we need flashes of color, and we get none of that from a piece of steel sitting 300 yards away. And so it just, it gives you that big advantage. That's the biggest reason that you'd want to zoom in, in my opinion. Let me, uh, before Mike says something, let me kind of throw in, I will throw in a, a very recent example in the gaming where positive ID of a target was important. The team match I shot last weekend, um, hopefully we'll do an episode about that here soon because there's there's a lot of things I learned there. They had a stage. You were prone kind of behind a barricade. You had to shoot through. But they actually had, like, I don't know how. I wouldn't say full size, but fairly large plywood truck. They had two trucks on each side out of plywood. And, like, with window, and they had a truck bed with a target. So you had a target behind a window. You had a target sitting in a truck bed and then a couple other targets around 
Um, I didn't shoot this one. I shot one of them truck. The other truck, though, had a target with a red uh, band across it, like a red piece of tape. That was a no-shoot target. So you had the order that you were supposed to shoot in, you know, what targets and where. But um, so seeing the headshot of the target through the truck window, Zoom definitely helped that. It wasn't just like I can see a big truck, but I got to be able to know where the window is and what part of that is is target to shoot. So little extra zoom, little, you know, I, I say positive identification of seeing, of knowing what I'm shooting at help there. But my partner who had to shoot a certain targets and not hit other targets, magnification help a lot because, uh, it, you know, in a match, it's hard to tell. I would say they were probably around 100 yards, probably a little bit more than 100 yards with zero magnification, you know, just naked eye looking at that you know, trying to see like a red stripe across it may not have been as, as easy to do. Cause there was that no shoot mixed in with, with actual shoot targets. So yeah, it, th there are times where a little more zoom can help be the difference between shooting a target that is a, you know, a bonus or shooting a target. That's now a penalty because you weren't supposed to shoot it. Um, and and like Mark said, in, in trees and woods, there's been a lot, especially running guns. They you'll be out in a bright lit field and they'll have some steel stuck down inside of a a wood line, you know, just five, ten yards into the wood line. And scopes do a really good job of kind of cutting through that shadow so that you can actually um see just literally see the steel at all. So uh Mark, why don't or Mike, why don't you kind of chime in here? Just some of the general advantages, um, talking about what it does for you visually to cut through shadow and, and help create uh, an environment where you can see and acquire targets. That magnification also works to help you uh, estimate distance. A lot of the targets that we are at um, at these matches are close to standard distances and kind of a, a general size range. And so if you, you know, kind of zoom in a little bit you can kind of get an idea for hey that looks like probably a 12 inch plate so if you shoot a fair amount you kind of recognize hey, a 12 inch plate that's going to be about the size at two three four hundred yards um so it can help with your range estimation looking at the target the objects around the target and then one of the other things that that little bit of magnification that you pick up uh will help you do is read wind because there is the wind at the shooter and there is the wind down range. And so that, that magnification in LPVO or MPVO can help you read the grass, the leaves, and, uh, or, or, you know, sometimes you're at a range that has actual flags and you'll be able to identify what's the wind actually doing where I can't feel it. And uh, it, it's been pretty crucial in making some, some long range impacts for me and I know some other shooters out there. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's the big one. So, obviously, um, there is the magnification. Uh, I guess, you know, Mark thinks these should be written down and I should have a better plan, and he is right. One thing we didn't talk about here is, um, yeah, I, I'll give it more, is um, there's kind of scopes fall into two different 
kind of working methods, which is first focal plane and second focal plane. I think some of the strengths and weaknesses of them are tied into how they work. So um, let me, so uh, here's a, a gun with a scope. So second focal plane is that, now I'm going to get this, you are, your reticle is going to stay the same. So where is that? That's focusing back here, right? So your reticle stays the same and you're zooming in and out and that reticle is always the exact same size. Doesn't matter. Your, mat, your background's changing, your reticle's staying the same. Your second focal plane is when I zoom this lens up and down, the reticle changes sizes along with your background. So if I am, I guess as in it, for instance, if I have a one MOA dot and I am focused on a one MOA target at whatever distance and I zoom up with a first focal plane, both of those are going to zoom the exact same. So if it was one MOA and now I'm zoomed up a bunch and my dots three MOA, Whatever I'm shooting at is 3MOA. You know, that 1MOA target's now 3MOA. Or, or mills or whatever, you know, you're doing. With a second focal plane, I got a 1MOA dot. I'm going to zoom up. Okay, well, now the target that I'm shooting at is 3MOA. My reticle still 1MOA. It, it has not changed. So um, the way that works can really affect how you use the scope, what kind of what's ideal to do with with the scope would that be a fair assessment of it guys you want to correct anything i said wrong i think you said second focal plane twice when you were holding up the gun and describing it oh all right sorry so first focal plane was the second one i was describing and that is yeah first is the reticle and the background zoom at the same so sorry for for the miss the misspeak there. So um, I guess any, anything else on that? Is that a pretty easy explanation? You guys got a better way to kind of describe. It? So first focal plane, a simple way to explain it is the reticle stays proportionate to the target throughout the range of magnification. Second focal plane your reticle is not going to stay proportionate to the target. So as you zoom and bring that image and magnify that image, then that reticle, even though it's staying the same, when you look at it, it's not growing or shrinking with second focal plane. That target is growing. And it's not, the MOA of the target's not growing. The, that's fixed downrange. But your magnification makes it look like it's growing. I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah, I think. And then the last thing to tie all that together is that you're, if you have a reticle that gives you range or drop, you have to use that on a certain power if you're running second focal plane. If you're running first focal plane, you can do your drops and your wind calls and your ranging on any magnification. So that's kind of the last part to tie it all together. Yep. And, and I, yeah, I was wanting to, I was definitely going to get there, but that's, that's a good time to say that because that would be in practice, 
that's the huge difference. If um, if I have, and so they're really popular. One to 10 scopes have gotten really popular. A handful of companies make them. Um, if I have a one to 10 second focal plane scope, which they exist out there for some reason, if I, if, if I crank to 6X and I have a second focal plane scope, all those drops, whether it's BDC, whether it's MIL, whether it's MOA, doesn't matter. All of those are going to be different than if I zoom to my 10X power. And, and you have to check your manual. Generally, a second focal plane scope is accurate. Those drops are accurate and are set up for the max magnification. You can figure it out. You can use ballistic apps to figure out what they are at different things. But then you gotta, you kind of have to know that you're exactly on it. You know, it's it's kind of hard to say like, oh, I'm perfectly on six x, so that stuff lines up. So when you start using holds in your reticle at distance, that is um, where second focal plane has some pretty substantial downsides. Um, on the flip side, if it's a 4 or 6x scope and you think, well, if I zoom, I'm going to be using, you know, all of it. Well, then there's really no no downside. I Personally, 4 to 6x is kind of where I draw the line and anything over that, any magnification over that, it, for me, has to be first focal plane. But um, uh, depending on your use, this is one of those things, depending on what you do, it you can choose something different. There are um, some massive magnification scopes with second focal plane that guys use for sports like F-Class because those guys are shooting from the bench or prone or whatever it is. I think is F-Class prone. Do any of you guys know? I think it's prone. But you're getting a stable position, and, man, you want you want that dot to be super small, and you want to get the tiniest little group, and so – you know, second focal plane all the way cranked up. They're not you. They're not holding off with windage. They're not doing any of that. A uh, uh, 25x second focal plane is a perfect scope for that sport. The flip side, if you do PRS and you grab a 25x second focal plane scope, you're probably going to have a lot of a lot of problems because. There, there, and we can go into this. There's a lot of reasons that you don't want to hang up at your max magnification all the time. Um, seeing things is good, but being at your highest magnification, if you're not stable, it brings in wobble. If um, you have a lot of targets that you're transitioning between, your transitions can be slower because you know you've got such a small depth of field because of how or field of view, I guess I should say, if it's much small field of view that like you just, you know, all you see is the target. And then when I got to shoot the next target, I got to bring my head out of the glass or, or do something else there. Having too much magnification is almost as much of a problem as not having any magnification. So, or not enough, I should say. Um, so first, second focal plane, a any more to add to that? Okay, so oh, Mike's got something. Uh, I was going to touch real quick on illumination because that is a, something that you kind of see a difference in first and second focal plane. Uh, 
because of the technology and the method of illuminating the reticle in a first focal plane, it takes much more power to create a daylight visible first focal plane reticle. They wash out normally a lot easier. And then to create some sort of reticle that catches enough of the light to show daylight bright, normally there's some sort of thick horseshoe or center dot. And there's kind of some pros and cons with that. And it really comes down to reticle design. Uh, an example of a scope that is kind of like right at the edge of daylight bright on a you know July sunny day in Ohio at the range would be like a Trijicon AccuPower, the one to eight. Um, it, it really struggles to try to be illuminated and it's gonna eat a lot of batteries in the process. Uh, now, the ones that really came along and changed the game for first focal plane illumination would be Night Force, the NX-8 and ATACker are both daylight bright for summer in Ohio, maybe not Arizona, can't speak to that, haven't used those reticles out west. Um, and then the Vortex Razor Gen 3, that is also a daylight bright LPVO that is, uh, has excellent illumination. So the way that second focal plane works, it's traditionally much easier to create a very good daylight bright reticle. So that's just kind of a difference, something to consider a lot of the, uh, first focal plane get around the illumination issue by uh, creating a reticle with something that makes it pop. Uh, the EOTech Voodoo, for example, is an older one that struggled to have that uh, daylight illumination for summer. So they put the donut of death out of their uh, holographics around the center aiming point of the reticle. So when you're at 1x, you get a nice donut of death. Trijicon has their own version of the same thing. Um, and a lot of those first focal planes, primary arms, they do that as well. It really only changed when Night Force and Vortex uh, really upped the game on what could be done with first focal plane illumination. So I, I thought I'll just touch on that because that is something that comes into play with first and second focal plane. And LPVOs, are going to be battery hogs no matter really what brand you have uh they're just they can't present the battery life of a holographic or red dot so plan accordingly uh, majors i always put new batteries in before matches and yeah just something to consider there yeah absolutely i've never oh mark go on I was going to say, you should maybe put that in context. When you say that it takes a lot of battery or it takes a lot of power to drive light into those reticles, if you go back to episode one, you've got even a cheap red dot, they'll run for 50,000 hours or something like that. Let's say 30,000 hours, 50,000 hours, several years on medium power. These, even a good LPVO is maybe 1,000 hours. So we're talking an order of magnitude times five, you know, plus a multiplier in there of that's a good one. Most of them are a couple hundred hours and that's not on cranked all the way up, which you might need. And then go all the way to first focal plane. We're cutting it even more. And so about the only way you can get any battery life out of an LPVO is primary arms is now doing their shake awake uh, add on that you can put on their scopes. And so you're not really getting more life. 
you're just having it shut off until you move the rifle and then you're saving the battery that way. Uh, but I don't know of any LPVO that's more than a couple. I mean, even like a couple hundred, like 200 hours is pretty good for an LPVO turned up to any usable brightness. And so it's not something that you just leave on your bed turned on and it's going to be ready to go in an emergency or anything like that. So it's it's important, I think, to put that in a context. When he says it's hard to make it bright, it's really hard to make it bright. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's why, and it, we, I don't want to go too far into it. Like they have the dual focal plane, which I think does a little bit different stuff. And sometimes that can help with like your illuminated reticle. I, for me, like dot or illuminated reticle, because there's, there's both options. Um, I don't know that I use with a lot of the reticles I have in my guns. I don't know if I really feel the need to use um, like the red dot or the red illumination in like really bright light. But as Mike said, and some of this alluded to reticle design is the big thing here. Um, what you're doing with it, the magnification range, all that, the reticle design, you have to find what really works for your goals and what, what you're doing. So I, there's a thousand different reticles in them and what you do really affects whether that's a really good reticle or a really really poor reticle so you can really optimize your scope your reticle to your usage but on the flip side if you get the wrong reticle for what you're trying to do um it, it could be a downside uh mike mentioned the acupower i love my one to eight acupower the middle dot nat the aiming dot is or it's a plus sign it's kind of on the thick side for running gun for um three gun i actually think it works fine i've never noticed it to be a hindrance now when i go to zero or if i was going to use that for like more precision shooting where i wasn't holding off that big thick center reticle would would probably be a detriment like that would not be what i want to do to go you know shooting really really small targets you know and and dialing like if all i want to do is hold center and dial at 300 yards that reticle is going to wipe out a lot of a lot of targets just just by the nature of it so what you do what you're doing really makes a, a difference in your reticle so um you kind of have to pick and choose that um did you have something to add mike yeah i was just gonna briefly touch on uh a couple reticle things um so really the common reticles that you see in the second focal plane scopes are the BDC or a crosshair with some sort of basic BDC or measurement system. Uh, we'll talk about Vortex because it's pretty common. A lot of people have either looked through them or know someone. So like the Strike Eagle series, they've got a second focal plane that's a horseshoe with a drop with some stadia for for BDC it's a general so when it comes to that reticle it might line up with your ammo it might not those holds where they're like hey this is your three your 400 depending on your barrel length your caliber it might not you get lucky they kind of try to design something that will generally work but this is where it comes into uh try to use a ballistic app 
get a chronograph, find a buddy with a chronograph. A lot of us in the, the shooting uh, sports have a buddy that have one. And so you can figure out where is your actual holes with that second focal plane. And then certain ballistic apps can actually help you figure it out where it is through the magnification range because that's part of the second focal plane problem. Uh, generally, uh, some of the cheaper ones will illuminate in the second focal plane that uh, horseshoe and the drop stadia. But for the most part, most second focal plane optics, it's just going to be the very center dot of the crosshair is where you're going to find that illumination. Your uh, stadia is often either uh, MOA-based, mill-based, or that BDC. That's just kind of second focal plane in a nutshell. And now to vary a little bit by manufacturer, but that's just kind of the idea. First focal plane is where things kind of get a little bit wild with your reticles. You have your traditional crosshair with some sort of milling lines or, or drop measurement. And normally it'll be in mill. Some are in MOA. It's not as common with first focal plane. Most first focal plane shooters end up being mill shooters. And you do find some first focal plane BDC. Um, I think you see those primary, primarily in the primary arms. And uh, I think Vortex might have some as well now in their lower models as well as their Gen 3 Razor has a BDC option. So also offers something that a lot of the second focal plane optics don't have which is a Christmas tree style reticle. And that is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. We've probably seen a lot of them in different catalogs and advertisements. And it is a drop stadia that kind of looks like a triangle or a Christmas tree. And as you go down, it gets wider. And then there will be hash marks or lines that give you hold distance for wind or uh, different circumstances, leads on moving targets, as well as your actual drop. You see those most on... Uh, First focal plane, which is also pretty handy for like what we do in the competitive shooting sports with run and gun, where you might show up to a stage where you've got uh, four, five, six certain matches are pushing out now to 900 yards at a run gun. So having that Christmas tree where I can figure a little windage in there as well as elevation gets pretty handy. The downside is if you don't practice with the Christmas tree reticle, they can feel very busy, and you can get lost in the reticle. That's a little bit harder to do with your traditional crosshair with drop stadia uh, that you see in second focal plane and some first focal plane. So there's some basics on the reticles. Um, Ryan or Mark might have something to add to that, but I just kind of want to give a brief overview on some of those differences because we might touch on some of that stuff later and the characteristics and some of the different scopes we have to kind of talk and demo tonight. Yeah. Let, let me say, and let me say about the BDC, cause this again, and I want to really emphasize this, this is all um, context related. Like what you're doing really affects, there's no one scope that that's going to do everything. So Mike's talking about BDC, the gen two razor which is, I don't know, is it is it like 10 years old at this point, probably, the original one, is still a, for a lot of people, what they do, a absolutely phenomenal choice of scope. That center red dot on there is really, really bright. I mean, when we're talking daylight, it's daylight bright. Um, 
for a lot of three gunners, that was the gold standard. And I would still argue is like if someone wanted to get in three guns, said I need a reticle, just just get get a Gen two razor. Those BDC, you know, the JM, uh, JM, whatever reticle. Um, if you're shooting at four or six MOA targets, like a ton of three gun matches are, if your ammo doesn't line up perfectly on that, those targets are probably big enough that you can make something happen, you know, or, or I've got to just hold my 400 yard just has to be at the top of the target, not the center of the target. And I know I'll get my hits. Um, because a lot of three-gun matches are, are pretty generous-sized targets. You know, you're not shooting at a two-MOA target. Again, if you are shooting two-MOA targets all the time, one and two-MOA, BDC, BDC may not be be the best choice. So, again, you got to weigh out those options and um, and, and figure out, like, like, what is it? One option is to spend years and years perfecting a reload that shoots and lines up perfectly with your your JM reticle, right? Right, Mark? Is that uh is you've got that load, right? I mean, it's been like five years. You've nailed that down to where you got a perfect load that's one MOA and, and works with your reticle. You're muted. You're muted. It's you're, cricket. You're still just cricket. You're you're still muted. It's your it's I think he's frozen. On, no, I see him talking. He's muted on the computer. I don't know. He's frozen on my screen. Oh no, I can see him moving, but he's his mic is muted on not his headset mic, but on the actual um app itself. So his, I and assume Skype he's just here. waiting for us to move on so he doesn't have to acknowledge this. Oh. Yeah, now he's frozen. So we'll we'll see what happens. So yeah, um, there are ways there are ways to make BDC um work. Uh you can actually adjust your zero a lot of the time. If you use like a ballistic app, you can go in there and and start playing around with your zero distance to find something that lines that up. So like you could be like, oh, 125 yard zero. Um, I'm on at 125, and then I'm at the next line down, I'm at Two fit 247. Well, 247's 250, you know, for for the kind of stuff we're doing. And then maybe the next line is like 439. Well, 439, we can pretend that that's 440 or 450, you know, that's all all within that um the kind of general size target we're shooting. So um a lot of the action shooting sports you can you can kind of get by with that. So um, that that's that was some good points there, Mike. Um, so maybe um, let me go over some features here. Well, I don't. Mike Mark's still frozen. We I don't know if we lost him yeah. or or what's going on with him. So let me go over a couple features you you may or may not find on a uh, first focal plane. That some of these are positive, some of these are negative. So this this is a medium power variable optic. Um, Quite a few of the modern LPVOs, and obviously not all of them, because there's a lot of options. You will have what they call uh, like target turrets, adjustable turrets. So in this case, mine are locking. Um, I can lift up on this, and if I want to dial for some reason, like shooting out further, I can 
I can dial my uh, my optic up. So if I have drops that maybe go past what my reticle can do, all I've got to do is is turn this and and I can dial to it. This one, um, you'll notice if I go all the way down, it, this one has a zero stop. So no matter how many revolutions I do here, like I'm not counting, it, it doesn't matter. I can do a bunch of turns. I can always go back and there we go. I'm back at my zero. Um, I think for a lot of reticles or a lot of scopes, I would say this is almost a mandatory, but the um, locking. So if I push this down, I can't turn it anymore. Oh, there's Mark back. Yeah, we, so uh, I, we stopped. I, I could hear you guys talking. I could not respond. <laughs> okay. My, I was completely. We, uh, but yeah, I want to add the whole reason that you get into reloading isn't to shoot small groups or to save money. It's to get that perfect BDC load. And that's what it's all about. <laughs> so if you haven't yeah. thought, if you're thinking, if you're on the fence, like, hey, I can get that reloading set up and really start saving money. No, it's all about chasing that dragon and getting those exact drops. It's uh, it's important. I think that's really the key. Yep, absolutely. All right. So we were just going over, I was going over a couple of features that you may or may not find on uh lpvos and pvos so the adjustable turrets are fairly common these days locking again is is i think kind of a must um same thing with uh your see if i can do this without my windage same exact thing i can adjust it if you know usually you're not doing a lot of uh, adjusting of your windage on the clock unless you're shooting long range or you really jack something up with your scope but a lot of them have that. Um, Wait now, so is adjustable turrets a must or locking adjustable turrets a must? Locking, if if they're adjustable, I would say locking is a must for run and gun. Almost 100%, I would say there's, um, there's no reason not to have them. You're probably not gonna mess with them much in a run and gun, but having them come twist around on you, and, and we can talk about that as a downside, um that that is bad because when you got it slung and your windage gets adjusted you're now you're missing so um if you're gonna have locking if you're if the scope has locking i would say or has adjustable turrets i would say make sure that they lock um whether it's windage elevation a lot of lpvos have a that adjustable uh elevation and then your windage is actually like capped so you just set it, you put a cap over it, you, you can't touch it. Um, that, yeah, that that's a pretty common setup, I think. For is that is your wind is your elevation capped on that too? So this particular model, this is a Gen Three Razor. You have capped windage and elevation turrets. Now, if you decide that you do want to dial, you can pull this off, and you do have a cap that has um gradients and this is a mill so it's got uh mill gradients on it and then it is uh set up where you can uh not put a zero stop but once you've zeroed the optic you can pop this cap off set it to zero so if you dial you know one or two uh mill or uh, you know you count your rotations and you know that you went past one full rotation you can come back to it but Cap turrets are generally the winning solution for a run and gun match. 
Yeah, yeah. So you're that not... is one example. Those are also one of the advantages that you get with this style of turret is it's a lower profile. So you can actually do a 12 o'clock piggyback and you are not going to find that the turret obstructs your view of the dot. So that gives you a nice heads up natural uh, solution for close up engagements. And also you end up with a really wide field of view because you're looking over your main optic to use the piggyback red dot. Now, one thing you have to consider when you move into some of the other Kurt styles is these are an older first focal plane. So these are not zero stop or locking. So if you end up with a scope like this, you need to make sure that you have visibility on the turrets that as you come into a stage, you make sure they didn't get spun. And generally you want to make sure that they've got some pretty good resistance. So they're not going to get spun very easily. Um, while I'm a huge advocate for capped or locking turrets, I never had a Voodoo turret spin on me for years of running gun. And that's just because of the tension that they put in them. Now, here's the other style is kind of like what Ryan was showing you. Is these are the taller target style turrets. You will see these on the medium power variable optics more than the LPVOs. But... While it's nice because it gives you something easy to grab and dial, you also have the downside of these stand proud of the optic quite a bit. And so they're more likely to snag, get hit really hard, knocked around. And so you definitely want these to be locking or zero stop. And then also what you run into is to try to put a 12 o'clock dot to try to get over that top turret that red dot's going to be extremely high and you're going to be going from a chin weld to, you know, just rubbernecking way over high over the, the optic. So the solution with that is you try to do a dot offset between the turrets. And while it's not the ideal solution, it's definitely a minute of running gun target for what we're doing. So it, you kind of have to take the pros and cons that come with the different designs. So, and then you also have to make sure that whatever mount you're picking works with those particular solutions that you want to employ with that optic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are some uh, kind of adjustable locking turrets that are a little bit more low profile. I mean, Again, there's every company's got their thing out there that they're doing. There's a lot of variables to it. So I would say whatever you're looking for, if you don't have an optic, kind of look at what you're planning on doing with it and um, what your what what tools you need for that. Um, my other kind of main rifle is a 16 inch. It's got the Athlon 1 to 10 and it's got I don't think the top turrets are quite as big as this. They're a little bit they're bigger than like the low profile, but um, that's got adjustable on top. But then the side is a capped windage because, yeah, I, if this could be capped windage for all I care. I, I don't, I'm not dialing wind on the clock for the kind of shooting that I do. So, um, yeah, that's a couple things. Um, you know, a lot of times, most of them, as Mike showed, you'll have a illumination knob on the side. That's 
most of them have some kind of knobs or or buttons to adjust that. And uh, in some cases, and this would be pretty much the medium power variable optics. I don't know that anyone makes a low power, but you have your your parallax adjustment. So as we kind of talked about in the, so parallax is where that reticle, your focal plane itself is is um, in focus at. Generally, most LPVOs and most optic, if, if an optic doesn't have a parallax adjustment, the manufacturer has decided where they're going to have that parallax fixed at. Um, could be 100 yards. I think generally two or 300 yards is where most manufacturers set that. But with a scope with adjustable parallax, you can actually adjust that to whatever distance you're shooting at. Um, where this would come in, into play. So if I get a cheek weld and my parallax is set to 300 yards and I'm shooting at 100 yards, um, where my eye, where my cheek is and that reticle, um, if that moves around a little bit, that's that's moving around the impact of my of where I'm going to hit. So, and this kind of, I guess, maybe one of these guys can explain a little bit better. On the flip side, if I adjust my parallax to 300 and I'm shooting at 300, when I move my head around behind that optic and the gun's staying still, that um, reticle should stay in the exact same place because the distance that it's focused at is the distance of the of the target itself. Anything different than those your focal where your reticle is focusing is is not in the same area. So if you have a big problem with parallax and you're not consistent with your cheek weld, your your point of impact is going to shift a little bit. Um, for running gun, three gun, I would think I think I would pretty easily argue that if you got a pretty consistent cheek weld, you don't need adjustable parallax. Like that that's not a feature that is needed for the kind of shooting we do and I, I would make that as a like two moa and up size target within like 600 yards like if you're doing that kind of shooting you're not getting and really most of our targets are like four moa so um again if you're a prs shooter and you're shooting one moa targets at 300 yards you very well may want parallax you probably want parallax adjustment because that kind of thing's really going to enter into the equation. Does that make sense, you guys? You want to add or correct anything I said? Yeah, I'd just say that target's blurry, twist the parallax, it gets in focus. But I want to go back. Well, yes, it does focus it, but it's more than just that. It's actually affecting your, your point of impact. Right, but you're if you go to the extremes, you can't, you're not even close. Like you're, you won't even see the targets. You know, it's so fuzzy. Which, yeah, let me let me caveat that since I told you about this earlier. So here's the big downside. I have started using this medium power. It's kind of a test for me to try something new, experiment with some stuff. Um, generally, I've been pretty happy with it. If you kind of notice on this scope, um, you see all this shiny silver. 
this is where my scope has made contact with something in my running gun kit. The last match I ran this, I had it in a biathlon sling, so it's hanging on my back. Well, something is hitting this and slowly adjusting it and slowly adjusting it and slowly adjusting it to the point where I got to stage seven of the day and I went to look through my optic and everything is horribly blurry um, just because of environmentals. I assume that um, I had a fogged up glass. So I started shooting. It's a team match. My partner started shooting and I thought, man, something doesn't seem right. I need to check my optic. Look at a windage locked where it should be. Look at elevation locked where it should be. Look at parallax, kind of glance at parallax. Uh, it had worked its way down to a, a parallax of 10 yards. So I was shooting at a roughly 200 yard target adjusted to um, 10 yards, which meant everything was blurry as shit and I couldn't see what I was doing. And my because of that, you know, my focal plane was all off. Um, that would definitely be a downside to a scope like that for a sport like what I'm doing. That parallax, if that gets adjusted and you don't check it coming into a stage like Mike was talking about, you can have some pretty um, unfortunate events or, I mean, that 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 cost me a good 10 or 20 seconds or more on a, on a stage that really wasn't that, shouldn't have been that long of a stage. So, Mark, did you have something to add? Yeah, so I want to backtrack for a second, back to turrets for a minute. In run and gun and three gun, no one ever touches turrets for the most part, especially three gun. You almost never, unless you're at one of those, you know, super special matches where you get the 700 yard high value target, you know, something like that. But we should talk about why no one touches that. Because in PRS and a lot of other stuff, you're always cranking away at this and doing that. One, we're on the time. PRS is on time too, but two, or I guess two, is we don't have, we're not range finding our specific targets. Three, our targets are relatively close. Four, we tie this back into all our reticle discussion. We have drops in most uh, scopes, and we're guessing where our holds are going to be based on the range that we already guessed on. We didn't laser any of that stuff. And so we're we're doing a lot of, you know, this is kind of the magic of long range status. This is the difference between people that win and lose is I can guess how far that target is and I can guess where my hold is based on what I'm seeing in my reticle. And that's how I'm going to win. I'm not going to. All right. This is uh, 250 yards. And then you do a little knob here and then you yeah. hold it now. On. Now, to be fair and in, in three gun. You know, especially in major matches, most guys are coming out the day before lasering targets, and they know 200, 350, 540, yada, yada. But as you said, they're not dialing on the clock. They're just, right. you know, they're either writing it down or they're memorizing in their reticle where they're at. So, so yeah, run and gun, on the other hand, very few times are people lasering targets. I mean, I, I know of times it's happened at specific matches, but... Yeah, generally it's a blind stage. You're showing up and you're just you're just gonna send it. Right. So. That is a good point about three gun. I did kind of forget about that. So you do because if we really want to talk about gaming, is where you get your NFL wristband, and yeah, 
your excuse me, NFL tactical wristband, and you write down where all the targets are and your drop for everything. Yep. And so uh, we don't touch the turrets for those things. And then wind is all voodoo. You know, we're not going to make a two-click adjustment because, uh, yeah, uh, that one, yeah. it's it, You're going to hold, and we got 30-plus round magazines. We're going to keep firing. We're just going to keep shooting until you get D60, that impact. D60, baby. That's right. So it's, it's part of it's. You know, Ryan keeps saying, it depends on what you're going to do. Well, that's what you have to ask yourself. Are you willing to shoot three or four times to get that impact? Or is it PRS where you get two shots and it has to happen? And in run and gun, same thing. You know, if we survey all the run and gunners, they say, how often have you ran a full 30 round mag dry on one stage? And they'd say, uh, and you'd say, and how many targets were on that stage? like six you know like something like that and so that's part of it we're, we're talking about gaming we're talking about balancing all these different things and tying them together into a system so that we can be effective for the game that we're doing with those trade-offs and so i think that's yeah. a, a big or, thing or, to think about yeah or the general so so here's a good example of a reason maybe someone would want elevation adjustment on a gun that was going to be running gun. He says, hey, I like running gun. I'm doing a lot of that. But you know what? This is also my coyote rifle. Like I'm going out and I'm busting coyotes on the weekend. And um, some of them are small. I'm hitting bobcats too. So maybe you're setting up in a stand and you do have some set distances. And you say, hey, these are small targets. I want to use the center of my reticle. I'm going to dial on that. Well, so, you know, again, that's. Figuring out what you're doing with it. If it's a multi-purpose rifle, there's there should be very good reasons that you would have an adjustable turret. If all it is is a gamer gun and you're just doing running gun or just doing three gun, um, yeah, just just skip on the adjustable, you know, the target turrets they usually call them. Skip on it because you're you're probably not going to use them. Um, now one place you, one place you are going to use them is everyone listening is going to sign up for Zombie Run and Gun, and we're going to shoot out to 1,000 yards this year. And I I know for myself, I'm going to shoot the same rifle I used last year, my Christmas tree does not go to 1,000 yards. So I will be dialing to get that 1,000-yard shot. And so that's a place that you can say, hey, I know this specific match is going to ask a very specific challenge from me, and I'm going to have to dial to do that. So, you know, it, it just comes back to what are you trying to do? I've I've dialed down at matches. So um, I know, well, Wolverine, the first year we shot it, they released some stage stuff. There was a couple stages. You were doing 25-yard head box shots. So when we're talking about head box, not the whole head, but like the, the kind of index card related or sized box. I figured out my 25 yard, like the difference and where I needed a dial. So I dialed down so that when I was shooting that stage, it got time to shoot it. And I've done this on other stages since then. All I had to do is put my reticle where I wanted to shoot it. I didn't have to try to hold over top or hold under, you know, any kind of hold. I could just hold my reticle right on. And um, I've done that some with some of the Thrum targets, the real small, like two inch targets that were shooting it 
five, 10 yards is I just dialed down and then your hold off is a lot different. Um, again, this is gamer stuff. You're probably not going to do that all the time, but if you come into a stage, a bay, and you see a little tiny green target and you're like, ah, I'm going to be shooting that really close. Maybe I, maybe if I know that I want to dial down. I don't know. I don't do that all the time. Like I don't do that a ton. Most of the time I come in, I just like, I know my holds for small targets at closer distances, but Having said that, there has been times where I thought that was a, a faster, you know, maybe better um, strategy for it because because I knew what what that was, what I needed to do. The really important thing to remember is to forget. You remember to forget because as soon as you leave that stage, you still have it screwed all up and then you get to the long range stage and you miss everything. So you need to just done that. <laughs> you need to done. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I've, I've, or I've gone out and shot, I was shooting 600 yards and I had dialed for it, you know, out screwing around. And then uh, guardian last year, we were shooting around and I was holding off and then I was dialing. And then very next three gun match, I went to shoot, had just thrown it in this, the, um, gun bag. And I started shooting at targets at 50 yards and I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. I'm like, man, what's going on? Oh yeah. You know, I'm freaking you know, six or seven mils off or whatever it was, which I, if anyone noticed, I was playing with my parallax. And as soon as I got done, I, I put it back to 200 yards. Cause that's generally where, where I keep it. It's, Cause that's a good habit. But again, these are the pluses and the minuses for every plus that something has, there can be a downside and forgetting to adjust your turrets back would be a pretty massive downside for, if you're never using it, it's it's not much of a plus sign. So, uh, Mike, you've been quiet. You got got anything to add on on any of these features? Yeah. So while we're dis discussing some uh, basic features of optics, one thing to consider in the uh, LPVO and MPVO is how the adjustment for your zoom is made. So this SIG, for example, is set up and they've got a little bit of a raised piece here. So it kind of helps you grab it, move pretty quickly through your magnification range. This EOTech has a cattail or uh, throw lever where you just screw it in and then leave it. So when I got the optic, put a little Loctite on the thread, sunk it in, and you can tell it's taken a beating. The positives is this thing, I've never lost it. It's taken a beating and held up really well. The downside is if I did something that caught and broke this throw lever, there's a good chance it's going to mess up the optic. Uh, what you see with a lot of the other companies throw levers, uh, whether aftermarket or factory, is going to be closer to like what you see on this vortex here. And so they just use a small mounting screw to clamp this on. So if something would happen and this would get caught, that small screw or this the thin aluminum band that constructs this cattail or throw lever would fail hopefully before the optic would therefore being sacrificial uh you see guys run zip ties to do this um 
or there's uh, throw levers that kind of work with the same principle as zip tie. And the whole point is it's to be sacrificial. There's 3D printed ones. Uh, one thing to consider is while these are fantastic to be able to sort through your magnification range in a hurry on a stage, you also need to be conscious of your position, whether it's from the factory or one that you've put on. And the reason I say that is down here with the optic at 1x, if the rifle is running it, riding against me and my kit, it'd be very easy on this side for it to get bumped or moved and my magnification change. And then also, if I want to use the top dot and I've moved that cattail into the top position, can I still see the dot? Is it still usable? So there's a, a few little considerations. These throw levers really are handy. I really do recommend having them on your MPVO or LPVO because it's also a really great visual indicator when you're actually behind the optic of where you're at in your magnification range. But if you have the option to position the lever, play around, figure out where is the best position. You can see that this is not actually out in a 90 degree. It's rolled down a little bit. And I found that that helped me. And then I could go midway through the optic magnification range and still use the red dot without much interference except for one segment that I don't use as often. So, yep, that's just kind of basic idea of the little cattails or throw levers, and uh, they're pretty darn handy. So that seems yeah, good. I... But what I'm noticing, though, is that you have to break your shooting grip. and you're Yeah, gonna you want to keep your time. hand on the hand guard. Right, which would be ideal. Yeah. And if you could adjust that cattail without breaking your grip, you know, if while you, you jerk your gun off, right. If there was a natural movement that you could get, you know, like a lot of just without having to do that, wouldn't that be really what that you wanted? Somebody should come up with that. Right. And you know, uh, like, yeah, it's got so many potential uses. I'm going to buy one just so that I can have you it should. for the show. You should. So, um, yeah, <laughs> kind of going off on mics, a lot of these that have the hump in it, you don't really have an option of where your throw lever goes because that hump kind of prevents. I don't know if, if, how visual that is. There's a big hump there. It, your throw levers kind of go where where it's going to go. Um, I personally, I've, I've broken a lot of throw levers. Um, I do like the plastic ones for the reason Mike kind of mentioned is that if I really bang it on something, that plastic's gonna break long before the scope breaks. Um, the 3D printed ones are okay. Actually, there's at least one or two companies that are milling them out of nylon. So it's it's not a 3D printed, printed plastic, it's a milled plastic. Those have held up the best for me. But having said that, I've, I've, I've broken those too. I mean, most of them have pretty good warranties. I, I don't think I've ever had to rebuy one, I just, contact them and they go oh that's our old design we've improved it or uh one of them well you must have tightened it too tight because we've never had one of those break before it's like no it's it's been on there for a year and a half like i, I haven't changed the tightness it just I, I use it so it gets it gets broken you know i mean i i chuck my gun over walls at running guns i, I don't know it's i don't think most people beat on beat on them quite the way that that we do so um, yeah, throw lever, that was a good, that's a good thing to mention. Um, 
Really, we've done a lot with the pluses and minuses through this. Um, let's hit a couple other min. Let's hit some of the big minuses. And I'm going to throw the big, I'll say the big elephant in the room with LPVOs is um, I, I box, I relief, whatever you want to call it. Um, red dots, 1X red dot, kind of doesn't matter where I'm at behind that optic. You know, as long as I can see that dot in the window, I, I can shoot that gun. Red dots are, are uh, LPVOs, MPVOs. That's not the case. You, you have generally what's known as the eye box. You've got, you know, your eye relief is how far back from that back glass that you can see the optic. But you kind of have a sweet spot in there where the optic looks right. If you get too far forward, it's not good. If you t get too far, you know, you'll see black. If you get too far back, you start seeing weird. So that kind of eye box that you have can be somewhat narrow on some scopes. It's always going to be less than like a 1X red dot. can be somewhat narrow on some scopes. It can be very, very narrow on other scopes. And what magnification you're at also makes a difference. At 1X, most of the eye boxes on most of these LPVOs are pretty generous. Like I would say, well, not a red dot like you can get a pretty sloppy cheek weld and still get a pretty good sight picture um the higher magnification you get generally the tighter that gets the more critical your head placement is um that's that's kind of the nature of it every brand does does it differently um again the i think the gen 2 razor is probably one of the most generous eye boxes of any scope i've ever shot i mean it's a phenomenal, phenomenal scope because of that. Part of the reason people love it because um, not that you don't want a really good, consistent cheek weld, but again, in these sports where we're getting into weird positions, we got a barricade, we're shooting inside of a car and we've kind of got or underneath a, a barrel or something, your eye cannot always get in that ideal position. Um, I think a great example is a VTAC board. When you start hitting those bottom three positions on a VTAC board, um, you are not getting the same cheek weld you get as if you're shooting from a bench or standing up offhand. So I, I would say eye relief is your your biggest downside. And again, depending on what optic you get, that makes a, a big difference. Um, generally, the bigger the range of magnification. So your 10x scope, your 1 to 10, is probably all things equal going to have a more narrow eye box at 10 than your one to six power scope. So anyone want to add, kind of add on to that? So the eye box is kind of where the MPVO has started to come back into play. And that is because like this Gen 3 Razor really the eye box for a first focal plane with that range is pretty awesome. I would say that up at one to six, the eye box is 95% of the original second focal plane one to six. And then this is a first focal plane optic. Once you start pushing past that seven into eight X, you notice that the eye box starts to get a little bit tighter and then up around nine or 10 X, 
I think I've only used it in a match condition once, and that was Cola Warrior shooting 700 yards. Uh, really, I end up using this in matches up to about 6x, and part of that is because the eye box gets a little bit tighter. Now, the medium power barrel optic. Now, depending on the manufacturer, the range, the magnification range, you can see it's a little bit bigger. The uh, Gen 3 Razor is not the biggest LPVO out there, but it's not the smallest either. But the MPVO, when you are going to that 10 power, even if it is a 10 power optic, it's probably going to be a little bit better on the eye box than that 1 to 10. And that is just the physics involved with setting up the lenses and how the light is flowing through and how the image is being brought to you. Uh, and well, then it's, it's, only magnif- it's only magnifying five times. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're 2 to 10, or 2 to 10, you're magnifying that low five times. That 1 to 10, that's 10. That's twice as much magnification for, like you said, all things considered, all things right. equal. And even the uh, the MPVOs where you're looking at uh, like that 3 to 15 range, uh, which you're starting to push out of the MPVO. Uh, but still, that iBox at 10x is going to be more forgiving than the Razer 1 to 10 at 10x. So if you're shooting a running gun where uh, a lot of them, like east of the Mississippi, you're looking at, uh, depending on the match, five to seven stages, and you'll probably see one stage at uh, shooting at a range past two or 300 yards. And because of that, the LPVO makes a lot of sense. You'll be able to engage a lot of that closer stuff. You'll get... Very similar performance to a red dot. Um, Now, something that I'm seeing for this trend that's been happening over the last two years is we're starting to see more matches with maybe two stages past 150 yards. You might be around 150 to two, and then you might have a second one out to 600. I think Legion last year was an example of that on the 10K. And then, like, Zombie... And a lot of these matches on the west side of the Mississippi where terrain opens up, uh, match facilities get a little bit bigger, and backstop issues uh, start to go away, I see a lot more matches that it seems like the long range is increasing in difficulty and frequency. So that's where that MPVO comes in, where... You can still get in. You can do that work with your offset dot or maybe your primary optic at a two or a three. And all you ACOG guys, you're used to running your primary optic at a 3.5 or 3 or 4X. Then an MPVO is going to feel right at home for you in its bottom end. But, hey, now we're on that 600-yard stage, that you know 400-yard stage. Maybe there's a couple of those long-range stages at the match you're going to be able to pick up a little bit more long-range performance when you understand the optic and you practice with it. So there's just some of the the thoughts that I have behind that. Might have been rambling a little bit. Ryan, you nope. have anything you want to, to take and run off of that? Mark, 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 you don't? 
Because if not, I'll, I'll go on to the next um, downside that I think they have. So, okay. Um, yeah, I, I agree 100% with Mike on those. So the next downside, um, and like I said, a lot of these are downsides depending on how you look at them, depending on what, you, what you're doing. Um, LPVOs can be more complicated. So you have magnification. So, and I've heard people say, well, with the ACOG, like my Zoom's fixed. I don't have to worry about that. That's very true. If you're running an LPVO, you pro to get the most out of it, you do want to be changing your Zoom depending on what you're doing. That adds one more thing to think about. If you're adding on like uh, parallax adjustment or target turrets or, you know, this and that, again, this is more things that you kind of have to be familiar with. Um, I don't think... So, and I hear people talk about this, and I'm going to play devil's advocate to my negative. I hear people in the run and gun forums be like, well, you know, this just gets complicated. I don't know what Zoom to be at, yada, yada, yada. It doesn't freaking matter most of the time. And a downside is if you Zoom too much, your transitions, your depth of, you know, your field of view can be very small. So um, I tend to try to hang out in like the lower end of the magnification unless I absolutely have to. But having said that, if I shoot a stage, like generally I'm not looking at where my, um, where this is at. I'm putting it up to my shoulder. And if I adjust it either beforehand, I'm going to go, oh, this is kind of a, like a somewhat medium. And I'm just going to set it somewhere. And if I look through it, I'm like, nope, I need a little more zoom. Okay, I'll just tap it over. Or that's a little much, I'll tap it back. The difference between two and three or three and four or five in a lot of situations is very, very minimal. Like, I, I don't think, and maybe Mike can correct me, if if, my, if I set up a scope for Mike and he shot a stage at three or I had him shoot the same stage at four, like, in very few situations, is that going to make any difference at all on on the speed that he does it at? The difference between two and six, yes, yes, he is going to notice, probably notice the difference between two and six. But like two to three or three to four or, or you know, something like that, like a lot of times it doesn't it doesn't really matter. It's, I don't think it's as critical as some people make it seem to be. But again, it's a more complicated system. There's more things going on with it than just a red dot where I adjust the you know, at the range, I take my screwdriver out and I adjust my zero and I just turn it on and I got a brightness to deal with. And or in the case with an ACOG, maybe you don't even have that. You've just it auto adjust or, you know, you got your your um, fiber optic or whatever. So I don't know if Mark or Mike want to kind of weigh in on that. Yeah, talking about uh, the magnification range. Ryan and I have ROed a fair amount of running gun and three gun now uh, that we've been enjoying uh, shooting sports for over seven years. And on these rifle stages that are medium to longer range with uh, some transition involved, one of the biggest mistakes I see made is people going and over magnifying and it creates a couple problems the first is finding the targets there you you watch them they're prairie dogging out out 
yep, there it is. And then they come in. And then let's go find the next one that's to the right. Out, back in. If you have your, like, a first focal plane, where even if you have to hold, if you have where you're zoomed out enough that you can see two, maybe three targets at a time, you can find your way through the array without ever taking your head out of the optic. And that's going to save time. If you do have to prairie dog out, one of the advantages of having the top-mounted red dot is generally, since they're both straight over the bore, if you do have to prairie dog because you've over-magnified, you just put the red dot on the like the target stand or right in that area of that gong or whatever. And then when you do come back into your primary optic, you're going to be there. So that's one advantage to having a 12 o'clock dot is if you do get a little bit overzoomed and you're not going to address that magnification range in that mid-stage scenario, the 12 o'clock dot can save you. So, yeah, uh, my general rule of thumb is I go 1 to 2x per 100 yards. And that generally works out pretty well where you can move through the transitions. And people are like, well, man, that you know, I would like to have a little bit more for that 10-inch gong and 100 yards. Well, one thing that you're going to find is when you come up to a running gun and you're gassed, your heart rate's up, you're breathing heavy. When you're magnified in, all those little tiny tremors become so much more, and you notice it, and you start trying to physically fight and correct that. But in that tired state, you're actually exacerbating the problem. And then you get so lost in trying to fix that that you're not really doing a good job of engaging the target. So those little tremors that you might see, when you zoom out a little bit, they're not as noticeable. You're not going to be trying to fight them as much. Yeah, they're still there. You should be trying to make sure that the rifle's kind of isolated in such a way that it's not going to get your your uh, high heart rate and muscle tremors involved, and it's not going to be affected by your breathing. But this is part of the sport, and finding ways to mitigate those inputs is part of it. And so by not overzooming where you see those and backing out a little bit where you feel more stable and the image looks more stable, you're actually going to probably be more accurate um that's that's one thing is see a lot of the top shooters and and uh they're not over magnifying so that that's one thing um well and not just even the trimmers but like when you're resting up on like a wobbly cattle gate because like uh ellis's match last week and it's a great stage they did this on purpose they had a pallet and they literally drove a uh like a um fence stake in but you know but they didn't drive it it wasn't even driven into like the little triangle part like they just barely drove it in there and the whole thing was wobbly man if i was cranked up to 12x on that optic that i would have been you know i would have been losing the target with as far as how much you know you could get some movement especially trying to get steady so yeah like mike's saying too much zoom is is bad news so you, you can go on. Or if you don't want that option at all, you just use the ACOG and it is what it is. And you just have to roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Mark, anything else to add before I go on to my next negative? Nope. Okay. 
Um, you want? This I've is got one, a negative. Well, this is one Mark brought up. Do you you want to mention okay. it? This was the the price, or do you want me to just keep going with that? Yeah, I don't care. I mean, the the thing with price, it exists everywhere, right? So we got it in red dots, but the range in red dots is a lot smaller than we see in LPVOs. And the difference, the meaningful difference in LPVOs is significant. You know, you're getting a lot different of a scope for 300 versus 1300 in an LPVO versus you know, now with primary arms and hollow sun are just crushing it in cheap optics. Even like the SIG red dots, you know, like the highest end red dot is still way under a pretty decent LPVO. And so you get things like the turrets or the tension in your zoom lever or the light transmission, the eye box, the glass, the glass. And the clarity, the edge-to-edge clarity, which maybe matters, maybe doesn't matter. You don't spend a lot of time looking on the edges of your scope. You spend most of the time looking in the middle. Uh, But the price is going to be a factor. And you're going to, you know, we can talk about entry level is kind of the bottom of the barrel is going to be your Athlon maybe or your Strike Eagle that's usable. You can go cheaper than that. But, yeah, I, I would say it's hard to get much cheaper. And primary arms make some, I think. I'm not, oh, not yeah, have a lot of experience arms, with yeah. them. I don't have a lot of experience, but I would say like you're not gonna get a good LPVO for under two hundred dollars. Like you're 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 at least two to three hundred and up and 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 probably three and up, honestly. I only caveat that with I don't I don't know, like I haven't bought a bunch of new you know, these new cheaper LPVOs. So I I don't know how cheap you can get and still get something that's usable. Um, And then you can get, you can get a rock solid red dot for $200. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I will say for now, three, four, $500 um, LPVOs are probably comparable to a thousand dollar LPVO 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, because what we're talking about here is really, I don't know, maybe I'm off. Maybe it's the five or $600, but the quality has gone up a lot and price price has come down. Because for the most part, we're not talking about the durability of it. Most of these optics, even the cheap ones, you can beat on pretty hard, even though they're cheap. What we're really talking about is like clarity of the glass, light transmission, and, and, your, and your features th- that you want. I mean... Um, in general, I recommend people and I've, cause I've been, I've done the, the opposite of this is m- more money or less magnification. The, what am I trying to say here? I would rather buy a less magnified glass, you know, spend like $500 on like a one to four than spend $500 on a one to eight. If that makes sense. Like usually if you're getting a one to four at the same price as a one to eight, the glass on that one to four is going to look way better. So pay for glass quality, I guess, is the better way to say that. Don't worry so much about Zoom because Mike's talking. I mean, most of the time we're really not Zooming past five or six. So I, I shot quite a few years with a SIG one to four. And the, the Tango one to four has phenomenal glass, very, you know, sturdy 
built optic and i actually traded off a um oh Adaball. mark sold it to me Adaball one to eight there's a lot of hype what on a it. friend i bought yeah well he didn't know and either Adaball one to eight i bought that and the glass was not nearly as nice uh, in use was not as nice as the hype kind of had it up to be and I, and I don't want to say it's a bad scope don't buy an athlon or don't buy a add a ball because it's a bad scope don't buy an add a ball because their owner is an asshole like that's the better reason not to buy one of those but but I got better glass clarity with that one to four and I could see things at four five hundred yards better because of the better clarity than with a 8x that didn't have very good glass clarity so, I want not to clarify. Get con- no, no, I got to clarify this. So there's a, I didn't buy the Adaball. Adaball had a promo where you could turn any existing LPVO into an Adaball. And I had a Burris MTAC, which is a 1.5 to 5 or 6, something like that, which we haven't really talked, we didn't talk too much about low end because it's gotten so blurry. It used to be, you want to, you got to get down to that one X. But a decade ago, there's a lot of stuff that was like, yeah, that's a lot of, we have to put a lot of R and D and get you down to one X, but we'll give you one and a half X and you'll, you'll, you'll be pretty happy with that. And so that was kind of the state of the optics over a decade ago. Then Adaball came along and said, get rid of those, take an Adaball. And so it came to my house. I took that box over to Ryan's house and he's like, oh, this, this, this scope looks great. And then I got cash. And so I was happy. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and I've sent that on which, to the next guy that I sent it on to was happy about it. But I, like, again, their owner, Jimmy Labita, Adaball, backwards, he's an asshole. So don't don't buy his scopes. There are a thousand other companies that are not run by people who shit on other people's companies to buy scopes from so not not to get too controversial but um screw that guy so really what we're trying to say is there's no such thing as a free lunch when it comes to magnified optics we've brushed on it a little bit with magnifiers and red dots and so now we're kind of brushing on it with the the lpvo mpvo and so really best practice is if you have an optic that's kind of working for you and you know that you want to move to an LPVO or MPVO that's a little bit nicer, make the feature list and then check out what's in your price range. Get your hands on it and check out the glass in person or comparable glass from a similar product line. If you look through a, uh, for example, a Vortex Razor. You have a pretty good idea of the glass quality of the rest of the Razor line. If you look through their Viper Gen 2, you get a pretty good idea of what you're getting in that glass through the rest of their line. So kind of build out your feature list and understand that you need to be shopping for optical clarity. The features are nice, but if you have an outstanding feature list with poor optical clarity, when you're at that match and you're the first or second runner out and it's 8.30, 9 a.m. in Kentucky or Missouri 
and you've got some shadows and maybe some, you know, little bit of morning fog, heavy uh, uh, moisture levels in the air, that optic that had all the features that you wanted and it was a one to eight and you got it at what you felt was a bargain, you might not actually be able to see as good is if you pick up a one to four or one to six with the same features, but a lower magnification range. A really good example of this is Steiner's PX4i. That is a one to four and that glass optical clarity wise, a lot of people, when I would have it side by side with a Razer Gen 2 one to six, they are like, wow, we really can't tell a difference. Ibox was 95% of that one to six Razer and they're both, second focal plane optics and both extremely durable i went swimming with that steiner on my back and and they're known for making great uh, uh very durable optics for military law enforcement and competitive shooters so that was a great example of those optics you used to be able to pick those up for sub 500 dollars, and i would absolutely take that one to four second focal plane optic over a ton of these 1 to 8 and 1 to 10s that have hit the market over the last few years. And it's because illumination and optical clarity, optical clarity being primary reason why. So make sure that you try to get your hands on, look through stuff, understand the optical clarity is king. If you can't see it, you can't shoot it. And these morning or evening match conditions play a lot into can I see it. Uh, another thing to consider Not- too... Not even early morning. I mean, how many times do we shoot in the rain or like, mm-hmm. you know, the woods in the rain? I mean, that that it's cloudy all day, so it's there's not really any sun. And then you're in the woods, which makes it darker. And so you got, yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be early morning. It can be any time yeah. of day. So, yeah, absolutely. So, and yeah, so goes back to if you're shooting in the rain and you're swimming with the optic, generally try to get a durable brand. A lot of them have pretty decent warranties these days. Uh, Vortex really kind of rocked everybody when they came in and really brought that warranty into play that other people talked about but didn't really exercise. So, uh, yeah, another thing to consider, too, is uh, optical coatings on these lenses play with your eyes differently. And you'll see people, when you're doing your shopping, go back and forth of, well, I looked at scope A, and it was clearer than scope B. And then someone right next to them will comment, no, scope B was definitely clearer than scope A. Some of that has to do with your individual eyes. Uh, Ryan and I have messed with that with my razor next to, like, uh, my loophole Mark V, next to some SIGs and some other. So all mid to higher grade glass. And we settled right next to each other looking at the exact same target the exact same lighting we thought that i i like the loophole i thought that the image that was coming through that was very true to natural color and very sharp and ryan's eyes like the vortex so understand that it's great to try to get behind this stuff when you're shopping for optics a lot of times you're unfortunately in a store like maybe a cabela's or a shields or something like that. Uh, if you get a chance, the best place to shop for optic glass is at a match. 
when people are waiting at the start finish line of a running gun or uh, or maybe prepping their kit at the three gun match, you know, being able to to you know look into a bay and get an idea of that optic and and how your eyes play, or with that company's glass in that range, like I was talking earlier, is a really good way to to uh, fix the whole buying a second optic because that first one wasn't what you thought it would crack up to be. Yep, uh, I agree. Mark, uh, oh, did you have more, Mike? I was just going to ask, are we going to touch on size and weight here shortly? Um, We can. I was going to try to wrap this up because we're about an hour 30 now. Um, I can do this real fast if okay. you want me to do like a 30-second. Okay. Yeah, hit, hit so, real quick. Length can matter a little bit. And so here is a but one to really six. really love the girth. Yeah. So one thing that you need to consider is with the MPVOs, some of them are getting closer to the LPVOs in sizes, but there is some trade-offs when you start comparing. So that is kind of a con is when you get into the MPVO and LPVOs, you're generally looking at adding the weight of a mount and the optic, and if you decide to do an offset dot onto the top of your gun, I'm generally, I'm willing to pay a little bit of a weight penalty for the advantage that I get optically. But a lot of us are familiar with the old school ACOG. Look at that size difference. Now, obviously, there is a capability difference, but that's something you need to be aware of that some of these LPVOs are pushing almost 30 ounces with a mount or low 30. And, uh, you know, some of the ACOGs with a mount are under 20 ounces. Not saying ACOGs the way to go, but that is definitely a con. And when you're looking to build out your MPVO, LPVO setup, understanding that length and weight and tube diameter all factor into the mounts and your overall handling of how the rifle feels. And then since I'm touching briefly on the weight and the size, the mounts also come into play. Because if you want to be able to add a red dot on top, either top dot or on a 45, there's a few different mount options. And then these mounts themselves can vary, you know, three, four, five ounces even though it's machined aluminum. And then you've also got your bolt-on. This is a Geisley, very similar to the Badger Reptilla design. You can see dual recoil lug. These are pretty tough. They're not coming off mid-match, though, without a tool. A lot of us chase the QD craze, you know, because G-Watt and LaRue was out there and, you know, all that kind of fun jazz. The QD phase is, is uh, kind of tapered off as optics have become more durable and the offset dots are an option as well as a secondary sighting system. But again, you have to consider what mount am I using? How much does that add weight-wise to the package? Generally, I would say don't skimp on the mounts. I think the, the kind of most basic mount that I... I would consider would be probably the arrow line. Those are, if I recall, around 70-ish bucks, give or take, 
on sale. They might have gone up since I, I used them in the past. I've kind of drifted away from those because they use a cantilever lock design. And so since it bolts in cantilevers, when you go to torque it, it can actually rotate the optic, which can make leveling the reticle, which is incredibly important for long range, very frustrating. Um, but, yeah, just as a general, uh, make sure that when you decide to move into the LPVO, MPVO, that you consider budgeting for a uh, at least the arrow mount, if not better, and going with a reputable brand like ADM, Midwest. Um, the the Warrens aren't much more than the arrows, and that's it's, mm-hmm. I mean I th- I was just showing an arrow. That's one I've had around for a long time. So when I got that scope, I just tossed it in there. But yeah, the the Warren is not much more. I've got that on another rifle. That's a pretty solid choice at a at a pretty i think reasonable price yep absolutely so you don't have to go out and take out a second mortgage on a geisley or a badger mount even if they're nice uh you can get the durability and and some of the general functionality with something like a warn but this is what holds your optics to the gun and has to retain zero so if you drop it over a wall at heartbreak or you land on it going down a hillside um, at Guardian or, you know, whatever match you're at, you need to make sure that the mount that you choose can handle the abuse that you're going to give it because it it's very important. <laughs> it's, it's that connecting piece. And then also make sure that you when you put the mount on, most of these companies or fastener sizes have torque values. And if you over-torque the optic, you can crush the tube, and it changes the internal working. These are like Swiss watch gears inside here. And if you over-torque, you can change how the stuff is able to move, and you can ruin or permanently damage the optic. On the flip side, if you under-torque it, you might find when you do drop it over the wall or do fall on it, you're trying to make a 50-yard shot, and your rounds are landing five feet low in the dirt in front of the target. So, do a little research. Look for uh, manufacturers, torque specs, things like that. You know, general rule of thumb is a lot of those little mounting screws are are probably 10 to to 15 inch pounds. Some, depending on the diameter, up to 20. And then a lot of these, if you actually have like a cross-bolt mount, a lot of these are are like thirty to forty five inch pounds. I think I think some of them are high. Yeah, I think some are higher than that. Yeah. So yeah, it just depends on a, the brand. Yeah, as a good example, uh, the match I was ROing last weekend, uh, pretty nice mount. I think it was one of the nicer Sig optics, and I forget what mount, but it was like like a Badger, some really nice mount. See the guy shoot long range. See the gun recoil. What I don't see is the optic recoil, because his rings had loosened up enough that every time he shot, that scope stayed the same, you know, Newton's laws, that scope stayed yep. in the same place and that gun back and forth. So let me ask this. Um, so I have had in the past, especially when I was newer, I have had a scope mount loosen at the base. So that you know, that was that was user error. Have you guys in any of your matches had a scope? get damaged enough to lose zero 
So not talking about like it gets loosened up and shifts, but actually had like a scope go down to where it wasn't usable. Cause I have, I have not yet. And I don't even buy the nicest of gear. You know, I'm definitely like a mid range buyer. So Mike shaking his head. No, Mark, have you, have you lost a optic in a match? I've had a scope come loose in a three gun, but I don't but think it was game over. I think it was, you know, just push it back forward into the lug that it was supposed to be in yeah. and tighten it, and it was fine. And not but, even but like a, is, this is a return to zero mount. It was just like push yeah. it forward and tighten it up, and it was fine for the match. This is forward. When you yeah. go and you mount yeah. an optic on a rifle, the rifle recoils to the rear. So these individual lugs, the backside of this lug right there is where the recoil force is coming into the optic mount. So when you put the optic on, push it forward towards the muzzle so it's pushed against that recoil lug, and then you torque it. I've seen guys where they have some really nice mounts that are returned to zero. They just slap it on the rail and crank it closed, and then they wonder why that zero's off three or four inches. And I did some testing with some ADM mounts and a few other... Uh, of the QD style mounts. And as long as you know which slot it came out of and you set it on and push it, if you've got a fixed side, you want to make sure that you push it towards that uh, fixed side so it's pushed and then forward and then you close it. I think the, the farthest I've seen was like a minute and a half shift with the ADM. And uh, sometimes there was no adjustment necessary. So some of these really, the return to zero is pretty good. So if you get mid-match and your QD lever got bumped or you had a bolt come loose for your clamp on Geisley style and all you got is somebody's Leatherman to try to tighten it back up before you shoot the next stage, if you pushed it forward into that recoil lug and, and made sure it was there tight and you witnessed Mark so you know where it came out of, you could probably put it back on with a Leatherman and go out and hit that 200-yard target. So good mounts, understanding, witness marking, and, uh, and proper mounting procedures goes a really long way. Proper mounting procedures also means leveling the reticle. Yeah, so I was just going to show that. That's why I brought this up here. So I've got sil like silver Sharpie, basically. You can use um, like a paint pen. You can use nail polish. You got that around. I actually like silver Sharpie because it does wear off over time, which means that I need to go through here every once in a while and check this and remark those. Um, I have not had an optic come off since I've witness marked them. But I guess my point there was, what's that? That's not true. You lost your uh, hollow sun on your pistol. And that, that was witness that and I, Yes, that was. <laughs> but that that was, yeah. Um, that's pistol though. That's a whole different thing. That's but but you know what the thing, and you know what the thing was is that starting the match, if I would have checked it mid match, I would have seen that starting the match, the witness marks were still lined up. But yeah, that that did happen. Um, in a rifle, I have not lost one. I'll, I'll say that. But my point with asking is, sometimes there's this illusion I think that people are like, ah, scopes can be kind of fragile you know if you're not careful they'll break or they'll lose zero and um i would say modern like quality scopes are 
pretty much on par with red dots and other kind of optics as far as like like durability. Like I I'm not saying if you run both of them over with a car, like I don't know, it's a smaller package, maybe the red dot'll do better. But generally for what you're doing with a rifle, the red dot or the LPVO is most optic failures that I'm seeing at this point are user induced. Someone didn't mount it right. Someone decided to crawl through the obstacle course and didn't cover or protect their optic and jam packed it full of mud. That's not the optic's fault. That's the shooter's fault. The uh, Probably the only person that I can say is just a machine at breaking optics and mounts is Nick Hansen. Nick Hansen? And yes, I'm calling you out, Nick, because yeah. that Marine can Marine get break a, Marine. a, a yeah, Marine go to Marine, he could break a, a rubber padded room. So I've seen him break stuff that just defies the laws of who knows what. So, yeah, right. but generally for the most part, do it right. Degrease your threads before you put thread locker or you tighten them and you'll be good to go. Yep, and, and, and that, in fact, is what I did. I did not degrease the holes. The threads had thread locker. And I just, I just, I, I think I got in a hurry. I didn't think about it. So um, since I've done that, they've actually never moved at all. So, Mark, what do you got to kind of wrap this? Start wrapping this up. I don't know. I think we've hit it all. Uh, it's you're adding value, but you have to decide. You know, maybe we didn't spend enough time talking about what you'd imagine, what you're going to do with this optic, because. One thing we maybe see, at least in the YouTube and the Instagram sphere, is LPVO means do all. And we didn't really talk about how it's it's do most, but with we kind of talked about positives and negatives, but like, you know, what do you actually do? Do you shoot base stages? Do you shoot from zero to 200? Do you shoot all the way up to 500? And you're finding the optic that fits with what you actually do. And then the same thing with reticle. Do you need that big donut of death because you're just hitting big paper targets in a bay? Or do you need just the center dot and that's good enough? Uh, it's kind of figuring out your actual needs and then building that way, not, oh, so-and-so Instagrammer says this is the best thing or I've got $2,000 burning a hole in my pocket, so I should get the one to 10. And so it's kind of start with your needs and then I, I with LPVOs, I don't know if buy once, cry once is the perfect answer. I think it kind of, there. there's an argument to be made for start with the $500 LPVO and see if you do need the Razor or more, or even the $800 or more. I think there, you could argue that. If, if someone wants a sub, I'm going to say sub $600 LPVO, I the Viper Gen 2, the the or the the PST, PST. Gen 2, yeah, is it's a it's a one to six second focal plane. You are basically getting. Would it be safe to say like eighty five to ninety percent of what you're getting with a razor, except you're paying. Actually, what Mike just sent me one. It was like a demo or an open box, and they were like four fifty or something like that. There's a company I mean, that sells refurbed Viper Gen 2. Uh, one to sixes and they these refurb which still carry the vortex lifetime warranty are under five hundred dollars and you are getting ninety percent of a 
Razor Gen 2 in that optic. You'll, you'll notice maybe a little more fisheye at 1x, eye box a little bit tighter. Optical clarity past 4x is probably not quite Razor, but you're talking about below half the price of a new Razor. Yeah, and, and I would say and most there's no reason, right? And, and I would absolutely say that there is really no reason to go and buy a brand spanking new one when you have that deal because. We're going to go take it to a running gun. We're going to go take it to a three-gun. It's going to get bounced off a barricade, dropped in a barrel. Yep, Nick, quick. Sorry, man. Vor- Your gun's going in a barrel someday. And uh, hey. so, and Vortex you, you will know, fix it. Right, Vortex will fix it. So, you know, who cares if it's a refurb? My two cents. All right, yeah, finish. Sorry, finish up, Mark. I interrupted. No, I think that just makes sense. So figure out what you want to do with it. And it doesn't hurt to dip your toe into LPVO and MPVO and then figure out what you don't know. Because you just listen to us talk for an hour. We threw out a lot of two hours at this point. You know, we threw out a lot of things and we there's no objective way to say start with glass clarity. That's one that's ten out of ten. And then start with your throw lever. That's five out of ten. There's no way to really put all this mojo together. You just gotta kind of try it. And then go to a match and realize, oh, that I never used one yep. X. Why am I even bothering with an LPVO when I never used one X? You know, I could have just had the MPVO, and or I never even dialed up. We, we all this stuff was so close. What's even the point? I should have used a red dot. And so, kind of figure it out, and you'll. I think you'll have a better final kind of situation yep. if you do that. Yeah. Absolutely. I was perfectly happy with an Aimpoint Pro Red Dot shooting 200 yards at locals until I went to my first three-gun major where there was 300-yard targets in a tree line. And I was like, oh, I'm missing some capability. And I bounced around and tried a couple different uh, LPVOs, and I ended up trying three different second focal plane. And somewhere in the mixture there, I got my first first focal uh, oh, long night. First focal plane LPVO and it you know even though I tried another nicer second focal plane once I went first focal plane there was no going back for me and at this point I have no second focal plane optics on any of my match guns the only ones that are left are on some deer hunting rifles and that's just where I've settled on is first focal plane works for me but I had to try, you know, multiple different brands and multiple different optics. And yet at the same time, those uh, three first or sorry, three second focal plane optics was a Strike Eagle, the Steiner P4XI one to four and the Razor Gen 2 one to six. And all three of those optics are on my top 10 list of optics to recommend to somebody might not be for me, but at the same time, what is my preference might not be for someone else. There are some shooters out there crushing stages with second focal plane optics. We saw that Legion last year The you know, someone that knows their optic very, very well generally will be able to outshoot someone who has maybe a, optic at two or three or four times the value that really doesn't understand it and how to interface with it and make it work for them. 
So if that means you buy that $400 or $500 primary arms or Vortex refurb, and then you spend that next couple hundred dollars on, you know, shooting ammo over a buddy's chrono and practicing working through the magnification range, you're going to come out and you're going to do really well. And we look forward to seeing you out on the range doing it. Yep, absolutely. Um, a great example of this, this, this I'll mention that this, the match I shot last weekend, they had a somewhat challenging stage if you didn't have a little magnification. So eight inch targets at 180 yards, not impossible, but getting a little smaller. And then a full size IPSC at that. I saw two teams come through with iron sights, both rifles, 100% iron sights. Finish the stage. I saw got a handful of teams with magnified optics not finish the stage. What's the difference? Well, the guys with iron sights knew enough, and, and none of them, like, not that there's not guys that could crush it. None of those guys exactly crushed the stage. You know, the top time, I think, was two guys with LPVOs and good, you know, and good mechanics and good everything else. But the guys with red with the iron sights, knew where to hold, you know, or figured out their hold and was able to be consistent with it, with, with good shooting fundamentals. The people with uh, LPVOs that didn't make it either weren't zeroed, they didn't have good fundamentals, they, you know, bad ammo, whatever it was, did not complete that stage. So, you know, as we always say, it's, it's the Indian, not the arrow. You know, we want to give you the, the knowledge, some data, some ideas, you know, I guess maybe not data, but give you some of our thoughts as to what we've seen, positives, negatives, what we've seen with other people. But when it comes down to it, this is all context related and you've got to, you know, you've got to sit down and make that list. Here's the kind of matches I shoot. Here's what I've noticed shooting what I'm shooting now. And if you're just getting into the sport and you don't have that um, kind of background, then just see what other people are using. Talk to other people. I mean, we see guys, really doing great stuff with a um with the ACOGs you know and I I'd, I'd say some people would say that's an outdated kind of optic um but obviously it's still winning matches um but on the flip side you'll see guys winning with LPVOs and then you'll see guys with red dots that are crushing it I mean there's no one answer but you got to be honest you got to see what you're doing and I guess if you don't know my advice would be to look at what the majority, like go to your first run and gun with whatever you have and then see like the top three or four people that finish and then go up to them and say, what optic are you using? Or, or, you know, if you work one, I think working a match is a really good, if you're new to a sports, a really good thing. Watch people go through, see what people are using. And you'll probably see a majority of people are using a similar type of equipment. Go out and buy that and learn on that, and then and then once you get your opinions, you can buy something else, you know. Um, so, but if not, just just you know, use this as kind of a data point for maybe what decisions you do or don't want to make. So that's that's my kind of hopefully takeaway. That was the whole reason for doing like two parts on this is what what that what information can we give you that we've seen to kind of help guide you and your gear selection choice for some different events that sports that we've done 
and um, maybe help you save you a little bit of money so that you don't have to, you know, if you're out in Texas, we just saw Vendito, I think that's how it's pronounced, the OED or whatever, and they've got wide open, as someone said, wide open, you know, area with lots of targets that are hidden out there. And if you were doing that whole match with a 1X red dot, you would probably be better served with at least an ACOG, if not that LPVO, MPVO, something like that. If all you do is bay matches because you're shooting USPSA, um, that medium power 2 to 12 is probably not your 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 optic of choice. If you shoot a lot of stuff that's like close quarters and you're in weird positions and, you know, my match director likes to stick us in boxes and cars and stuff like that, maybe that ACOG's not a good choice. You know, that's got the, you know, that ACOG's got a much more narrow eye box than something else. Maybe that's not my best choice. Maybe it is the 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 red dot or the one to four LPVO with a pretty generous. I mean, this is all, this is, I guess the point we want to make is all this stuff needs considered when you're making these options. And no matter what option you make, the most important thing is getting out there with it and practicing and putting rounds down range and understanding like, this is my strengths of this. This is my weaknesses. If I get into this situation, I need to know that, um, uh, I got to collapse. If I'm getting in a real weird position, I got to collapse my stock in one because my eye box is a little narrow. And if I'm down shooting weird, I'm never going to get my eye in the right place. Or if I'm going prone, I'm going to kick it out one because that's that's what I need to do to get it. All, all this stuff is learned by just going out and shooting and putting yourself in weird situations and matches. So I guess uh, anything else, guys, I know we've we've carried on. All right. Again, thank you guys all for watching. I, I know it's long. I, I hope this has helped somebody. If not, um, I had fun. So <laughs> you guys are all here for my amusement. Thank you. <laughs> so, all right. Have a good one. I'm signing off.